As far as Cram and Rossi goes during that entire length of time, did, were you ever afraid that they were going to uh, tell someone or turn you in or, or expose you in any way? Rossi, Rossi at one time come down with some bullshit that he was afraid that I would kill him. Well, he knew about, you know, he was, he was with the John Zick thing, you know. He, he had threatened me several times that he could go to the police on me. Rossi would hold that over me. Ever, ever since the time he had gotten the car, John Zick's car. And that, you told that him one. that it was from someone that was dead? I didn't have to tell him. He was there. Tell me his exact involvement with Zick. With Zick? Uh, on the morning, I, I think the night after I had met him, I think Rossi was with me the night that I did meet John Zick. And then he was with me also the next morning. Because of being high in it, I don't remember if Rossi was there the whole night. I know Rossi was there very early in the morning. He could have been there through the whole ordeal. I don't know. I, re I can't remember. I do know the next thing in the morning is that we had to go get the, the car. We went and got the, the car from down on Clark Street. He was there the next morning, John? Yeah. When you woke up, he was there? Yeah, Rossi was there. Where was he sleeping? He was in the living room, sleeping in a chair. Where was Zick? Zick, I think, was on the floor of the other bedroom. Not the bedroom I was sleeping in, but in the other bedroom. He was dead? Yeah, to the best of my... Yeah, he had to be dead, because he was thrown in, thrown in for all mentioned at the outset of this episode that this is a continuing narrative podcast so if you are joining the party late i highly recommend that you start with episode one dead man walking because if you start here it's like showing up 25 minutes late to a movie and you've missed a lot welcome to defense diaries i'm your host bob mata and this is episode four flashback flashback so we left off last episode with 12 detectives charged with the task of investigating Rob Peace's disappearance, which entails hounding Gacy and following every lead that they can unearth. Gacy is not only aware that they are following him, but he has taken the approach that he will befriend those who are chasing him. It's clearly a case of that old axiom of keep your friends close and your enemies closer, which is exactly what not only the officers, but Gacy himself, are doing. Both detectives Albrecht and Hackmeister told us that in their entire careers that they had never experienced a situation where their tail tried to become their buddy. Clearly, Gacy's motivations were not pure. He wanted to be friends with these men about as much as he wanted hmm, a hole in the head. What he wanted, what he needed, was information. In the ultimate game of cat and mouse, he was desperately trying to become the cat. They had already fucked with his ability to kill, as he had been killing at the rate of nearly two young men a month during the entire year of 1978. And that, of course, thankfully, came to a screeching halt. No, what he was doing now was trying to evade arrest while in plain sight. 
I'm going to step back for a moment from the investigation as I need to briefly explain to you how the Cook County judicial system is organized. I'm not trying to give you a civics lesson here, but it will help you understand the politics that are involved with a case like this, especially in the city of Chicago. Okay, so Chicago is located in Cook County, Illinois, and it is absolutely massive. In 1978, 5.3 million people lived in the city and the outlying suburbs that make up Cook County. As you can imagine, in an urban area with that many people, there is a shit ton of crime going on. So much so that they had to break the county into municipal districts, six of them to be exact. And within each and every municipal district, there is a municipal courthouse. Chicago is of course situated in the first district and its main criminal courthouse is located at 26th Street in California. It's affectionately known as 26th and Cal. And that's where a majority of the major felony cases that take place in the city of Chicago are heard. Desplaines is located in the second municipal district, which is much smaller, and its courthouse is located in a town called Skokie. Now, Gacy's house was technically located in the second municipal district, geographically speaking, but it was actually an unincorporated village of Norwood Park. Why does that matter, you may ask? Well, if a town is unincorporated within Cook County and a crime is committed in that town, which municipal district gets the case is fair game. This Plains is a northwest suburb of Chicago. It's got a population of about 65,000 people. Uh, we're butted right up against O'Hare Field. And um, within, I think uh, we were, if I remember correctly, we were five miles from Gacy's home outside of Des Plaines. Norwood was pretty much between, I'm gonna say maybe Rosemont and Chicago. Back in the 70s, it was a lot of thefts from auto, uh, burglaries, uh, some drugs, domestic violence issues, uh, an occasional homicide, but maybe only one or two a year. A few homicides that I dealt with were um, somewhat re related to um, family or acquaintances. I don't think at that point I had ever handled a homicide that was uh, a total stranger. Understand that a case like this is a career maker for cops, lawyers, and judges. So any ambitious prosecutor or cop will be chomping at the bit to be assigned this case. Retired detective Ron Robinson elaborates on this concept of the jockeying that can take place when you have people driven by the motivation to succeed and rise up in the ranks. Isn't there politics and everything? It wasn't until uh, a short time ago that I found out that my partner was going into the station hours before we were supposed to report for duty. And he, he was doing that on a daily uh, basis, but he never mentioned it to me, nor did he ever ask, hey, maybe we should go in and, and uh, check on this or check on another thing that he was just uh, doing that on his own. Each team had to decide who was going to write down the notes of our activity. And each team would have one individual that would testify, and that would be the one that kept the notes. Well, Bob wanted to keep the notes. I, I had no problem with that. You go ahead and keep the notes. I got a copy of those notes at the end of the investigation, I'm gonna say I got a copy of those notes in early 1979. However, I read them for the first time 
maybe a month ago, let's say April of 2021. I had never, I had never read them up until then. And this is how I found out that Bob was going in early and meeting up with uh, Lieutenant Kosenzak uh, at the PD uh, because he had put that into his notes. So, but that was the first that I knew about it. While on its face, it's admirable that Schultz was coming in and putting in the extra work. But to do it on the down low and not inform his partner whose life he puts his hands in on the daily and vice versa, cast deep shade on Schultz and his motivations in coming in early. Because if it was simply to work the case, as opposed to, say, motivation to be the next cop to be named detective, then anything that Schultz learned during his secret early morning sessions would have been conveyed to Ron Robinson when he arrived for his shift. That didn't happen, ever. I'll tell you a story, okay? Bob and I would talk because we were partners in Delta before the the Gacy thing transpired. And both of us had ambitions of going into the detective bureau. And Bob would always say, he said, well, after I go in the bureau, you'll be the next one that gets promoted to the detective bureau. Well, as it turned out, after the Gacy, and, and this was after the Gacy case was over, I was promoted to the detective bureau, not Bob. After I was promoted, I was in the station and going downstairs to where the locker room was at. And Bob was coming up those stairs as I was coming down. And he completely and totally ignored me. He didn't say hello. He didn't say congratulations on your promotion. Uh, nothing. So uh, he was, I, I'll use the word, he was very hurt that I had preceded him into getting promoted to the detective girl. Now, in fairness to Bob Schultz, he passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. So he's not here to defend himself. I think a partner going lone wolf in the middle of an investigation is typically frowned upon. The same things going on within the ranks of the men investigating the peace disappearance make their way up to the assistant state's attorney's office as well of the first, second, and third municipal districts. There was an assistant state's attorney, which is a term that I will abbreviate as ASA from here on in, named Terry Sullivan from the third district, who was one of two ASAs that was working with the police during the entire 10 days that the investigation was going on. As a matter of fact, it was Terry Sullivan who assisted the Displains police in securing the first complaint for warrant. When he got involved in the case, he assigned state's attorney investigator Greg Bedeau to assist with the drafting of that complaint for the search warrant, and that was ultimately signed off by Judge Marvin Peters. That's the warrant that was effectuated on December 13th of 78. Another ASA from the 3rd Municipal District was a man named Larry Finder, who was also heavily involved during the 10-day investigation. Ultimately, these two men, respectively, had the rug pulled from beneath them when the first bones were dug up in Gacy's crawl space. Bill Kunkel ended up as the lead prosecutor in the Gacy case, and he did an outstanding job, in spite of the fact that the first district was kept in the dark during the entirety of the investigation, which is generally not the case. 
If you remember me telling you that the state's attorney's office and the police typically work very closely together, especially in cases like this, that didn't happen in the Gacy case. So when Kunkel is having to defend attacks against the warrants and the searches by the defense counsel, he's not defending his cops or his own work. Yeah, those damn warrants again, they keep popping up, but that's because they're a thing, especially in a case where the stakes are so incredibly high. Now, keep what I just told you stashed in the back of your mind, as I realize that I seem to come back to that December 13th warrant frequently, and that's not me being redundant. That is because that critical first warrant will become a primary focus for us over the next few episodes, as my investigation of this case for this podcast has led me to an absolutely mind-blowing revelation that I assure you I am not overselling. But for right now, we are jumping back into the investigation. So if you recall from the last episode, detectives out in the field had put together that John Zick was more likely than not another victim that could be tied to Gacy. So he was moving from creep to super creep in a very short period of time. While this was extremely important and unsettling work, it was not getting them any closer to figuring out what happened to Rob Peast. Sure, everyone had their suspicions, but suspicions aren't facts and you can't arrest anyone merely on suspicion. You need evidence. And as of December 14th, the Displains police didn't have any, at least not in regards to Rob Peast. And every single hour that passes in a missing person's case decreases the likelihood that that person will be located alive. The clock is ticking, and the need for Gacy to be removed off the streets is growing exponentially with every new piece of information that comes in from the investigators in the field. It's getting dangerously close to critical mass, in which desperate times call for desperate measures from the displaced police, and that's almost never a good thing. We are going to flash back. Well, since we are already flashing back, I guess double flashback is more the appropriate term back to December 11th, the night that Rob Peace went missing. If you recall from episode two, I spoke of a coworker of Rob's named Kim Byers. She had borrowed Rob's blue ski jacket because she worked the register, which was close to the front of the store. When a customer would come in, she would get hit with an Arctic blast. Therefore, she needed the coat. The following facts that I'm about to share with you come directly from Detective Ron Adams' written report of December 12th relating to his investigation of Rob Peace's disappearance. And Kim Byers' written statement given to detectives December 19th, eight days after Rob goes missing. I reached out to Kim Byers and asked her to come on the podcast in order for me to be able to ask her some of the many questions that I had regarding the statement that she gave. And she politely declined. I asked her again, and her daughter informed me via email that she just at this point wasn't interested. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you over the next few episodes, because I will be leaving it to each and every one of you to draw your own conclusions as to what may have taken place during this investigation. Remember, I am a criminal defense attorney and I parse police reports for a living. A huge part of my job is to find inconsistencies in the reports themselves and the statements given by witnesses. And moreover, because I really know the criminal justice system, I can tell if something does not pass the stink test. For now, I'm going to leave it at this. I find it very curious that Kim Byers has never really given an interview other than one with her daughter for an article that was published in Harper's Bazaar and a three-minute piece on an Oxygen episode 
of the mark of a serial killer, neither of which allowed for any real questions to be asked of her. And after I explain to you in detail what role she played in this case, I think that you will find it curious as well. On December 12th, immediately after the Peast family came to the Displains police station the morning after their son went missing, Lieutenant Kozenzak, as previously mentioned, put a plan into place. Specifically, he assigns the missing persons report pertaining to Rob Peast to a youth officer for further investigation. That man is the aforementioned Detective Ronald Adams, who passed away some years ago. So we will be going strictly from his prepared reports and handwritten notes for our purposes. Now, Kozenzak gave Detective Adams one task, and that was to get as much information as he could as quickly as possible. Adams, well, he got right to work. First thing, Adams is briefed on the situation by his commanding officer, Sergeant Fredericks. Lieutenant Kozenzak then tells Fredericks to bring in more manpower, which he does, assigning detectives Michael Olson and James Pickell to assist Adams in the investigation. The team is forming, and quickly. Adams at 9.07 on the 12th, approximately 22 minutes after the Peace family was in the station strenuously voicing their concerns, he ascertains that the contractor was some guy named John Gacy. During the same conversation with Larry Torf, Adams learns that Torf's brother and co-owner of the pharmacy, Philip Torf, has told one of his employees, Kim Byers, that Rob was talking to Gacy about a job. At 9.15 a.m., Adams now has Gacy's name, and Torf has supplied him with his phone number. Adams calls, Gacy answers, Gacy denies speaking to Peace, and further denies that he had any contact with the kid. At 9.38 a.m., Adams calls Larry Torf back and tells him that he needs Kim Byer's address and phone number. Torf supplies it. At 9.42 a.m., Adams calls Kim Byers at home. She confirms that Rob left the pharmacy at about 9 o'clock last night, and that when he was leaving, he told her that he was going to talk to that contractor about a job. Byers also adds that Rob had left some of his personal belongings behind, but that he could be forgetful. Upon further questioning, she cannot confirm that she saw Rob talking to Gacy in the store, or even in the same general vicinity of him when they were both there. At this point, Adams knows that this Gacy guy has lied to him, which tells him one thing, that this motherfucker is hiding something. Simultaneously, while Adams is working his leads, Detective Mike Olson is given a list of 13 kids that attend school with Rob Peast. He is instructed to contact and interview all of them, which he does by the end of the day on the 12th. Every single kid that Olson interviews, to a person, had nothing but the highest regard for Rob, and none of them believed that Rob was the type to run away or do anything drastic on impulse. None of them had any direct knowledge that Rob was a drug user or anything of that nature. Basically, Olson confirms what they already knew which was that there was no way in hell that this kid was a runaway. Back to Detective Adams. At 10.35, Adams jumps in his cruiser and heads over to Maine West High School, Rob's high school. And while in the presence of the assistant principal, Eldon Burke, Adams interviews one of Rob's buddies, a guy named Ken Collier. Collier tells Adams that Rob didn't have any issues at school, home, or work, but he did break up with his girlfriend right around homecoming. But that wasn't any reason that would cause him to run away. At 11.05, Adams leaves and heads over to Nissan Pharmacy, speaks with a guy named Todd Schultz, another employee. No help. 
He then heads over to Wall's Liquors to see if Rob had stopped in there last night. Nothing. At 1.34, Adams calls Kim Byer's father and asks him if he can re-interview her at school. He says, yes, of course. At 1.57, Adams arrives at Maine North High School, where he interviews Kim Byers again for just shy of a half an hour. She goes on to state that she remembers that the contractor guy taking measurements around the store and that he was rearranging things, but she doesn't recollect seeing him leave the store. She continues on, stating that she recalls Rob asking her to come watch the register. She asks him where he's going, and he says that the contractor guy wants to talk. I'll be right back. She remembers that was about uh, between 9 and 9.02 p.m., very specific. She also mentions that Mrs. Peast was in the store at the time that Rob left. Byers continues her statement, advising Adams that Rob had been in and out of the store at around 8 p.m., taking out the garbage. She remembers that because Rob had been pelted with snowballs by little kids when he was outside. Adams asks her about a statement that she was overheard saying, which was that he is a big boy, he can take care of himself. Byers is unsure if that comment was directed at Rob Peast or Phil Torf. At that point, Adams terminates the interview with Byers. With respect to this half an hour statement that Byers gives Adams, it's not what she says, but what she doesn't say during that interview that is most interesting. This was a very thorough interview. Byers was asked to give every detail that she could recall from that night. And I believe that that's exactly what she did. I implore you, remember this interview as we will come back to it at which time we will review Detective Adams' handwritten notes regarding this interview. In the meantime, we are going back to the ongoing investigation. So on December 14th, a day after the warrant was effectuated at Gacy's house, detectives are busy gathering more information about the missing Zick boy. You remember him, right? The victim who went missing and was reported so by his father in late January of 77, and who, if Chicago police had done anything even close to resembling an investigation, say, for instance, what Tovar does, at least 11 of Gacy's victims would not have been Gacy's victims? Yeah, that John Zick. Now, we heard in the last episode of Detective Tovar discovering that Gacy has a very workable connection to John Zick. Let's review exactly how he got there. Because in my opinion, they solved the Zick disappearance long before the Peace disappearance. And it's my belief that this case should have been the basis for the warrant that we haven't gotten to yet, which is the warrant of December 21st. We know that the main West class ring is found at Gacy's house on the 13th. On the 14th, Tovar calls Eldon Burke, the assistant principal of Maine West. Yeah, the same guy that Adams had in the room when he interviewed one of Rob's friends. And he asks him about the details of the 1975 class rings. He describes the ring found at Gacy's, and Burke tells him that he will check the dial tone and the legend, which were the Maine West telephone directory and yearbook, respectively. Tovar terminates the call. Armed with this information, remember, no internet or Google in 78, he discovers that the juvenile division of the Displains Police Department has a collection of all Main West yearbooks and dial tones going back decades, including 1975. Instead of waiting for Burke to call him back, Tovar digs in and discovers that only two students that graduated in 1975 had the initials J.A.S. And those two kids were John A. Schimmel and John A. Zick. 
After this call takes place, Tovar is instructed to go to the residence of Michael Rossi to transport him to the station to be questioned in response to the peace disappearance. As Tovar waits at the Rossi residence for him to arrive home, he notices that Rossi pulls up in a 1971 Plymouth satellite, white. He notes the plates, picks up Rossi, and transports Rossi to the station. Burke calls Tovar back at around 6.30 p.m. and informs Tovar that in 1975, that they didn't allow the ring salesman at the school, which meant that the ring would have had to have been purchased at a place called Herf Jones, a local jewelry store. Tovar doesn't tell Burke what he already knows, that only two students that graduated in 75 had those initials, because he wants Burke to keep digging for him. So on December 15th at 10.30 a.m., Burke calls Tovar and tells him that he's confirmed that the class rings would have definitely been purchased at Herf Jones and that would have probably been around in 72 or 73. In his opinion, the ring was either purchased by Schimmel or Zick. Tovar immediately digs up both the Schimmel's and the Zick's home phone numbers and calls numerous times with negative results. At 6.55 p.m., Tovar calls the Zick's residence again, and this time, Mrs. Zick answers. She tells Tovar that yes, her son bought a class ring, but that he's been missing for two years. Tovar asks exactly when and where she reported him missing. She tells him the Shakespeare Avenue District of the Chicago Police Department on January 25th of 1977. She continues saying that they had notified her by sending her a note in August of 1977 that her son's vehicle was found in the possession of a boy named Michael Rossi. And we all know who Michael Rossi is from the last episode and that that boy had stated that he had bought the vehicle in February of 1977. She said that Chicago PD's story just didn't add up. As far as she knows, his last paycheck is still at his place of work because they wouldn't let her pick it up because John had been of legal age, so they couldn't give it to her. If he needed money so much to move to California, why on earth didn't he pick up his last paycheck, which included overtime? Tovar, at this point, terminates the interview with Mrs. Zick. At 10.10 p.m., Tovar calls the Schimmel residence. John Schimmel's sister, Patty, answers. She informs Tovar that yes, John had a class ring, but that he had lost it in a lake, and she didn't have any more details. Tovar asks Patty to have John and or her parents call him because he needs to know if John definitely had a 1975 class ring with a blue stone in it, and if in fact he had lost or misplaced it. Tovar's work is done for the day. As he lays his head upon his pillow, he must have been thinking, so did this Gacy guy just happen to find this ring washed ashore in some unknown lake? Fuck no, he didn't. He closed his eyes, secure in the thought that the ring found in Gacy's home, without question, belongs to the missing boy, John Zick. On December 16th, Tovar drives over to the Area 5 Shakespeare Avenue District of the Chicago Police to speak with investigator Harry Bellamoni about the Zick disappearance. Before speaking with Bellamoni, he has given their case report, which for all intents and purposes was closed in November of 1977. So while reviewing the report, Tovar notices that Zick's vehicle had been a 1971 white Plymouth satellite. He immediately recalls that Rossi was driving the exact year, make, and model car. Tovar attempts to get a 1028, which is vehicle registration information in cop speak, on 676 plate. But due to the age of the plate, he can't get the info. 
Tovar learns in his call to the station that Detective Adams had also visited Sig's mother, and she had given him the registration for 1977 for John's car. Tovar is able to now get a 1028 and finds that that vehicle is in fact registered to John Zick with a serial number of RH-23GONG-239297-emphasis on the two. He then goes to the sound deck system to look up Rossi. He sees that Rossi, of course, has a 1978 registration for a white 1971 Plymouth satellite. He's able to ascertain the plate, and when he runs the plate, he gets back a serial number of RH23G1G739297, emphasis on the seven. Tovar, despite the one numeral difference being the two in Zick's registration and the seven in Rossi's, suspects that this was the same vehicle. Tovar calls for a registration check, meaning that an officer was sent to Rossi's house to physically inspect the vehicle. As thought, the cars are one and the same. So now Tovar has all this information before he sits down with Bellamoni. He tells Bellamoni that he spoke with a woman named Rosemary Zick last night, and she told him that they had sent a letter detailing some facts that he'd like to follow up on. I can just envision Bellamoni shifting uncomfortably in his seat when he hears the name Zick uttered out of the mouth of someone other than his parents, namely a detective from another police department. Tovar tells him that the letter made reference to a vehicle that belonged to John Zick had been involved in an incident, which had led Chicago police to believe that John Zick must still be alive, based on that fact alone. Tovar starts to question him. Bellamoni immediately states that the only contact that he had with that case was back at the time of that letter, which was back in December of 1976. Now, this is odd, because we know that John Zick is alive and well in December of 1976, as he didn't go missing until January 20th of 1977, and was reported so on January 25th of 1977. And moreover, that Mrs. Zick had told Tovar that she had received the letter in August of 77. So Tovar instantly knows that he's either dealing with a cop that's completely full of shit, incompetent, or both. Despite knowing this fact, he lets Bellamoni continue. He goes on to tell Tovar about the stolen gas incident with the Rossi kid that we learned about last episode. He claims that he then checks out the tags to the vehicle and sees that it's registered to John Zick. Bellamoni then claims that he goes to the residence registered with the Secretary of State and finds out that the kid is missing. Again, bullshit, as Mrs. Zick stated that she didn't have any in-person contact with Chicago PD other than when she reported their son missing. And we know that the Rossi gas theft occurred in August of 77, some five months after he had possession of the car from Gacy. Much more on that later. Bellamoni continues on, stating that he had asked around and found out that Zick was gay, which has zero relevance. He then states that information that he had heard was that the Zick kid may have moved out to Colorado. At 9.35, Tovar terminates this dumpster fire of an interview by asking him one last question. Did he ever see the car or the subject that the car belonged to during his entire air quote investigation? The answer to this inquiry was a hard no. No, I, I was tasked with uh, Detective Ryan to dig into all the connections through the driver's license, the rings, and everything else. Well, one particular thing is we found a class ring from Maine West. 
and he had the initials JAS. So we went back, found some, the actually the juvenile division and displays had yearbooks from Maine West because they dealt with them a lot. And we looked up the year, found the ring. John Azick, local kid, ran his name through, found out he was missing. So we went to see his parents, and they told us that several things were missing from his house, from his apartment, because he just disappeared. One was a television, and his car was also missing. So now that his mother was able to identify, yes, it's the same type of TV. So now we knew that that was in his house. And then we had uh, to go pick up Rossi one day, and uh, he wasn't home yet. So his wife said, why don't you guys just wait here? I said, ah, we'll wait outside, you know. And I said, what kind of car is he driving? I said, just so when we see it, in case, it, you know, he can't park right close to the house, because, you know, Chicago parking. And she said, it's a white Plymouth. I said, okay. So half hour, 45 minutes later, this white 71 Plymouth satellite comes by and we see Rossi, tell him we gotta go to the station for more interviews. Bring him to the station, they, and I did not interview him, somebody else interviewed him, and eventually they let him go, they take drive him back. And that night I'm looking through reports, missing persons reports, you know, just to try to form connections. And did you ever see the movie, uh, The Entromina Strain? Yes. Remember when they're looking at figures and that the woman is sitting there and all of a sudden this thing is like flashing at her, but she doesn't see it? Exactly. Something like that happened because, you know, I'm I'm just like not seeing something here, but I know there's something. I mean, it got instinct. And it was late, late, real late at night. I said, you know what, I'm tired. I went downstairs, took a shower, came back up, you know, because I was going to work straight through. And I started looking again, and all of a sudden it flashed at me. He says, John Zick, missing car in 1971. Plymouth satellite, white in color. I says, whoa. <laughs> so I quickly sent off a message to Secretary of State and asked for, you know, a title search on it. And of course, somebody got back to me bright and early the next morning, you know, because I told them it was a reference to a homicide case. And they sent me a copy of it. But the numbers were off by one digit. I, I thought it was a seven, but what it was, it was actually a two. But the bottom rocker, the two, was written along the the border. So it, it kind of fate blended in. So then, but everything matched, the color, the manufacturer, everything. So then someone, I can't remember who it was, he says, you know, that number looks kind of odd for a seven. Try making it a two, bingo, it hit. And then we got the the uh, paperwork on it, and you could see that the signatures didn't match, you know, so now we had something else really solid for the next warrant, yeah. At 10 a.m. on the 16th, Tovar decides it's time to look into this Michael Rossi guy. He calls the Cicero Police Department and talks to Officer Baldwin, who tells Tovar about an arrest of Rossi back on December 4th of 76 for three traffic-related offenses. He goes on to give him the facts of the offenses. They are of no consequence to the peace or sick disappearance. Tovar then knows he's done with Rossi for now, and so are we, but we aren't done with him for good, not by a long shot. He turns out to be a very interesting character in John Gacy's warped world. That's the skinny on what Tovar was up to on those absolutely crucial first days of the investigation. 
Let's examine more closely what the men tasked with following Gacy's every move did on the first days after Rod Peace disappears. I've been fortunate enough to have been given copies of both the Delta Team surveillance notes that were taken by Officer Schultz and Albrecht, respectively. As one member of each team was required to keep a detailed log of Gacy's movements and anything else of note that Gacy may have said or done during the entire 10-day span. Ron Robinson and Bob Schultz were going to be the first of the two teams that were going to be following Gacy. Before they left for Gacy's house, they determined that they were going to search Axehead Lake Forest Preserve, which was not far from Gacy's home. Ron Robinson describes this first search of the woods on the 13th. I'd say probably 90% of the, of the uh, missing persons or runaways that we had all fit into a category. They had a fight with mom and dad and they took off. They were having troubles in school. They were having troubles with a girlfriend and they just take off. In Rob Peace, uh situation, none of those applied. Uh, he had a very good uh, uh, home life, family life. Uh, no problems as far as girlfriends. He was a, an excellent student at Maine West. The day that he disappeared was his mother's birthday. She had come to pick him up from Nesson's Pharmacy to go home to uh, celebrate her birthday. So this is a day that you would not pick to, to be a runaway. Well, the first thing, though, uh, you want to eliminate something. So there are certain areas that the, run, the runaways would, would frequent in, in displays. Uh, and some of them were in the uh, uh, Cook County area, the wooded areas, forest preserves. So we decided to go in there and check them. And uh, I kind of uh, dressed for the weather that day. So uh, uh, I was chosen by Sergeant Lang to uh, go out and, and, and check the area, the campsites that the kids would use. And... Uh, I did find a jacket, but uh, I, I radioed to uh, Bob Schultz and uh, Sergeant Lang. I had found a jacket in there. The, they asked me what color it was. I said it was red. They said, no, uh, Rob was wearing a blue one, so that definitely wasn't uh, the jacket that he had worn. Uh, on the following, this was in an evening, and it gets dark earlier. You're, you're talking about it's in December, you're getting dark by five o'clock. It it is dark, and so checking these areas becomes uh, like an impossible task. Sorry. The plan on the following day, December 14th, for Robinson and Schultz was again to comb nearby wooded areas for Rob Peace's body. They had arrived at noon for their shift, and within minutes of that, they were told that they were now assigned to follow a man named John Wayne Gacy. They made their way over to Gacy's residence and familiarized themselves with the area. Ron Robinson was directed to go to Gacy's aunt's house because Gacy's family had gathered there due to the death of Gacy's uncle. Schultz stayed behind and sat on Gacy's house. The entire day leading into the evening was uneventful. Eventually, at 10.30, a black van with PDM printed on the side of it pulls into Gacy's driveway, and a young man aged 19 to 20 exits the vehicle and begins unloading construction materials into Gacy's garage. Gacy's nowhere to be found at this point. The man enters the van and pulls out of the driveway. Schultz alerts the other units that the van was coming, which they picked up and followed, 
only to lose it within minutes once it hits the expressway. It was a very slow first day for the boys following Gacy. That would drastically change in very short order as Gacy will lead these men on the surveillance experience of their career. On the last episode, I indicated that I would be disclosing a crucial piece of evidence that would turn the entire case around as the Desplaines police struggled to find any evidence of Gacy being involved with the piece's disappearance. Those of you familiar with the Gacy case are probably aware of this particular piece of evidence, as it was the first and only connection the police would ever make with Rob Peast being with Gacy. For those of you hearing the details of this case for the first time, that particular piece of evidence was a small piece of perforated paper that appeared to be a photo receipt for pictures that were developed at Nissan Pharmacy. This would end up being the strongest piece of evidence that the police would have in their possession to secure the ever-important second warrant, at least in regards to Rob Peast. Who, when, and how this receipt ends up in the hands of the police is an absolute mystery. A mystery that we will begin to attempt to unravel in the next episode of Defense Diaries. Last but not least, if you love digging in on the Gacy case with me, prove it. I can't tell you how important it is for you to spread the word by subscribing, sharing, rating, and reviewing the show. It's a small action from you that is a huge help to us. Give those recommendations if people are asking. We are an independently produced podcast. We don't have the war chest like the big shows do. So we look to you and depend on you to help spread the word. Thank you for joining us again, and we'll see you next week. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.